Namaste, you cunts. <laughs> Welcome to week 37 of the Blind Boy podcast. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, please go back to the start. This week's poem has been submitted by British actor Charles Dance, who is uh, an avid listener to this podcast. And Charles sent me a, a poem that he was adamant that I read out. And the name of Charles Dance's poem is Damaged Gander Handler. I am the damaged gander handler. I am the damaged gander handler. I work in a goose factory and I handle damaged ganders. Cramped ganders hurt their necks. Cramped ganders fight other ganders. I don't love my wife. I'm the damaged gander handler. I handle damaged ganders. I feel empty when I wake up. I'm a gander damager. I hurt male geese. Thank you very much to Charles Dance for that beautiful poem. I look forward to seeing you in some things. It's uh, usually with this podcast, I try not to... I try not to set it in any specific place and time. Um, because I want people to be able to... You know, you, you can happily now go back to podcast number one if you want to, and it doesn't feel dated or specific it's just you can listen to them whatever you want kind of like This American Life do you know that's what I like about This American Life podcast I can go back to 2014 and listen to a random episode and it's grand I enjoy that but um, yeah I, 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 it's it's the middle of fucking summer right now it's it's June and it's boiling hot. It is ridiculously warm in Limerick. Um, so warm that I can't not mention it because it would be disingenuous. So apologies if you're listening to this in December 2018 or whatever. But uh, yeah, it's fucking roasting. It's roasting hot. And we've a weird old relationship with the weather in Ireland. Um, like this year has been fucking extreme. Because we'd mad fucking snow up to March. And now there's been a heat wave for the past two weeks. And I'm not complaining about it. It's gorgeous. It's lovely. Um, I was there gigging at Body and Soul Festival over the weekend. And fucking hell. It was like being at a festival in France. It was perfect Irish festival weather. I've never seen that in an Irish festival. It was brilliant. That lovely dry heat. And you get those gorgeous... Dry... There's clear, fucking warm, dry nights. That's what it is now. A very, very hot, dry night. And the sky is clear. And you can gape up at the moon. And... There's a moisture hanging up high. Do you know? And that moisture... From the ground, obviously. That's what I like about the hot weather. It robs the moisture off the ground. It says, come on up here into the air for a while, you prick. But the moisture's hovering in the air. And when the light cuts through it in the evening, it 
excites no spectrums of sunlight that you're not privy to at other times. So, fuck me, there was this gorgeous peachy purple sky the other night. And the wonderful fucking, that smell of summer grass, which which I recently learned actually is, is chlorophyll. That's specifically, the smell of grass in summertime is specifically the smell of the chemical chlorophyll, which is... The fuck is chlorophyll? Chlorophyll is the chemical in a plant that makes it green and I believe it's responsible for photosynthesis which is how plants make food from sun. There's a bit of junior sort of science for you. But it's roasting. And yeah, we're weird with weather here. Weather dictates so much of Irish discourse, you know? There's so many things that I've often wondered. Like, for a while I was going, what is the story with us, with Irish people and binge drinking? Because we do, we drink a lot, you know? It's not that we necessarily drink that frequently, but when we do drink, we tend to drink to get drunk. Whereas when I'm over in fucking Spain, now, this heat that we have here now in June, that's not, that's like March in Spain. Spain right now is ridiculous. Last year, I went over to Cordoba in Spain to write my book in fucking August for a month. And it was very foolish. A very foolish thing to do. First off, I arrived there. There's no Spaniards. Because they've either indoors or they've fucked off down to the beach. So it's just me wandering around a very, very hot ghost town. It was 38 degrees. And I'd gone over to write the, write the fucking book. It was so hot that... When I took my laptop out in certain cafes, the laptop would just shut down. Such was the heat. And my phone was shutting off in my pocket. So, I got an Airbnb as well and I stayed with a Spanish family and they hadn't a word of fucking English. And I stayed in a room with, uh, stayed in a room with no, with no windows. Jeez, that was a bit dark actually. Yeah, I only got to Spain in, like, fucking February. <laughs> Spain in the summer can go fuck itself. But, yeah, when I watch the Spanish drinking, they don't even drink pints of beer. They have these small little glasses called canas. And I'm like, what are you at, let's? First off, the beer is dirt cheap. Like, if you want a pint, it's only two quid in Spain. But they drink these tiny canas. So one day I was went up to... I was... I was asking for fags as well when I'm in Spain I'll smoke fags because they're so cheap I can't not but I asked the lad for a light and he had a bit of English and I said to him what the f- like can you tell me why you're drinking these tiny little glasses of beer and he was just saying if we had a pint it'd be warm in two seconds it's rotten so they just go through these little small glasses of beer as well as that being hammered drunk is not very pleasant when it's hot <clears throat> so I often wonder is drinking uh, and our drink culture related to our shit weather the fact that it's always cold or freezing but then I look at like the likes of you know European countries countries that are equally as cold as us and they are able to sensibly consume drink so it's not the fucking weather it's just a cultural thing an excess an excessive attitude we have towards alcohol that's bred into us from a young age Um. We tend not to drink to simply enjoy the drink. We like to drink to get drunk. 
this is why I enjoy cocktails. Because you, you, if you listen to this podcast, you know that I'm, I'm a, a huge fan of cocktails. What I love about cocktails is I tend not to get absolutely shit-faced on cocktails. Because number one, they're mad expensive. They're like fucking 14 quid. And number two, a properly prepared cocktail there's an element of theatre and presentation to it, you know? You, 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 you'll you spend an hour drinking a, a well-prepared cocktail, sipping it gently and, and, and genuinely, mindfully appreciating every single little sip because it's so uh, well-prepared. The fuck am I getting at? What am I trying to talk about? Yeah. Irish weather and how it relates to the... Irish personality, right? We have, uh, in our culture, in Irish culture, we tend to celebrate shame quite a bit, you know, and this is reflected in the mental health crisis in the country. It's obviously, okay, the government aren't doing enough to help people, but also we can have a bit of a predisposition towards bleakness and... I would trace this to the dominance of the class, the, the historical and cultural dominance of the Catholic Church. Specifically, my hot take is confession. From a very young age, young Irish people, I, what is it, started about seven years of age, were told to go to confession. And what confession is, basically, is you get a seven-year-old child and tell him to Go, in, go into a a wardrobe with a stranger and tell the stranger your deepest, darkest secrets. Search for the sin. It's the worst part. Seven-year-olds don't even have sins, but we are told to search for them. But when you tell the priest your sins, the priest doesn't speak to you about them. The priest doesn't uh, kind of get you to reflect on your sins, to understand why. I shouldn't even be using the word sin. Your wrongdoings, we'll say, maybe if you hurt another person. The priest just hands out punishment in the form of penance. Do a lot of do a lot of Hail Marys there. And that doesn't from a from a mental health conversation perspective, that's fucking terrible. Do you know? You go to a good counsellor, and a counsellor will be non judgmental, and they'll ask you open questions whereby it's like you explore, you know, why are you treating this person in your life badly or why did you say this mean thing or whatever, this thing that you need to come to me about. That's what a counsellor will do. A priest will just go, say this magical prayer to to Holy Mary a lot of times as punishment. And that, I feel, has led to a an Irish culture of when we experience um, a sadness, we punish ourselves because it's in it's a cultural thing that's been handed down from the church but the other boiling hot take I have about Ireland and shame relates to the weather right now it's incredibly warm and hot and it's beautiful and it's so unexpected that we as Irish people we don't even know how to deal with it like when a blast of hot weather comes no one's prepared do you know It always comes out of nowhere and you're like, ah, for fuck's sake, I didn't buy shorts or I've no sun cream. 
or I'm not comfortable going around the place with my top off. I could have, I should have planned for this. I don't have the right clothes to wear to go outside. Bollocks. That's the Irish attitude towards a bit of sun. But there's also an anxiety when sun happens in Ireland. We can never enjoy sun because the nature of Irish weather means that when you get a decent blast of sun here, you know well that a week later there will be torrential rain. You know that fucking rain that slaps down out of nowhere out of the skies and you can smell oil. The ground just, it, it has this summer rain smell that smells a little bit oily. One summer I grew so obsessed with this smell that I had to find out what the fuck it was. And it has a name. It's called Petricor. And it's a... Uh, Bizarrely, they only they only discovered Petricor in 1964. And how long has the ground been smelling like oil after rain? And only in fucking night... That's like three years before the Beatles released Sgt. Pepper. And scientists decide, oh, we'll find out what the smell of oil, that, that ubiquitous human experience, we'll find out what that is in 1964, you pricks. Like, but it's called Petricor. And what it is, is certain plants right they when it's pure dry right when the plants aren't getting any water at all certain plants exude an oily substance from their leaves right and this then the oil goes down into the clay based soil and rocks normally and it's absorbed into it right and then when the rain belts down the oil is released and that's what that wonderful oily aroma is when the rain comes down after a dry spell and this is very familiar to Irish people we know that smell and this is my my hot take on the Irish um, our obsession with shame and self-flagellation I think there's an environmental uh, aspect to it when we get a bit of decent weather we can't enjoy it because we know that is going to be followed by the inevitable punishment of rain. And I think after years and years of this environment that we have grown to uh, become a shameful people. Uh, it's not just Catholicism. Maybe when Catholicism came in to do its thing, it found a people that were perfectly suited to its ritualistic uh, levels of shame and self-flagellation. Because our weather was already doing it to us. Oh, lovely, gorgeous weather. Ah, but it'll rain tomorrow though, won't it? And it'll all be gone. And with the rain brings a drop in temperature. And it'll be cold. And it'll be there. Looking at your watch. It's July. And it feels like November. And I think that's... uh, I think that has led to our culture of of self-flagellation. why I used to hate doing the fucking Edinburgh Festival as well <laughs> Edinburgh Festival for comedy I've done it about three or four years but it starts in the middle of August and you'll be there usually with, with Ireland June is class July is very wet and then August kind of gets its act together a bit it's half wet half fucking hot but it's generally warm when I had to do the Edinburgh Festival it's like cotton fucking summer short for a month 
going to Edinburgh in August is like downloading yourself into the middle of October. It's a very grey place, and it has a. It has a very. It has a fog. It has a type of fog that's unique to Edinburgh, it, and it, which they refer to as the the har. I've only ever heard Scottish people say the word, but they have a word for this. It's like you wake up in the morning in Edinburgh and all of us, you go outside your door and you're living in a cloud. And you can't really see two feet beyond you. And it's bizarre, very strange. Uh, it is nice actually because there's a moistness to it. It's like being in a mister. But the, yeah, the Scots have a word for it. And I've never seen it written down. I've only heard it pronounced by people from Edinburgh who I can't understand at the best of times. And they call it something like the haha. I don't mind gigging in London in the summer. London can get nice and hot. Although, any time I've done like a, a lot of gigs in Soho Theatre with the bandits in London, like in July or something, I'm always subjected to the British obsession with Pims. And Pims is fucking rotten and I don't even know what Pims is it tastes like Ribena's ball sack and they mix this red Pims drink with I think sparkling lemonade or whatever and then they fuck a lot of cucumber and apples into it and it's not pleasant and the British people drink it and it's it's a cool refreshing drink but there's nicer drinks in the hot weather and I wa- I, I think if I was to psychologically analyse, culturally analyse what PIMS is, it's it's a colonial thing. The British, you know, this is the one thing that we'll never understand about British people is, or not British people, but British culture. They're a colonial empire and the colonial empires are always in competition with each other. I think PIMS exists because... The Spanish, another massive colonial empire, they've got sangria. Sangria is fucking lovely. It is gorgeous. There is nothing wrong with sangria. It is nectar of the gods. But the Brits, because they're a colonial empire, they won't reduce themselves to drinking, culturally will not reduce themselves to drinking sangria because then it's like, sure, we can't do that. That's what the Spaniards do and they're the competition. Like uh, I've spoken before about the explosion of gin consumption in the Industrial Revolution in London. One of the reasons gin became popular, William of Orange was a Dutchman. He became the king of fucking England. He brought Geneva, which is gin, with him. And gin became kind of the national drink of England because they were like, don't drink brandy. That's what the French drink, another colonial empire. So I think Pims exists in Britain to combat or are in opposition to sangria because the Brits are too proud to drink sangria which is a much nicer drink than fucking Pims. But my hot weather drink of choice is most definitely sangria. Um, around Christmas I gave you a mulled wine recipe called a Yorty Ahern. So I'm going to give you the summer equivalent of my sangria recipe. And yeah, what I usually do, I, I make a load of it now. I make a you know those giant fucking you get them in heatings you know those giant big glass mason jars right they hold about 6 litres and they've got a little tap at the bottom I've one of them and I make sangria in that right 
not on my own, obviously. I'll invite the boys over because I'm not drinking five litres of fucking sangria. But what I do, basically, is... Here's the beauty of sangria. You don't have to spend money on the ingredients, right? You can buy... Get two bottles of red wine. Now, you can reduce the fucking... The proportions, if you like. But this is my recipe. Two bottles of red wine. Go into Aldi or Lidl. Um, or and and the thing about this, you could this is this is your excuse to buy the 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 five euro red wine, which is generally unpleasant and acrid, tastes like bent nettles, but with sangria you can buy the five euro wine, or if you want, splash out and spend the ten euro wine, two bottles of red wine, right, then one cup of brandy, and you don't have to fork out for the fucking brandy either. Get the brandy in Aldi or Lidl. Cost fuck all. I think it's 11 quid for a bottle of brandy there. Then, cup of orange juice. Sugar to taste. And cut up like limes, uh, lemons, few apples, whatever you want. And mix it around well. Leave it sit, okay? And if you're feeling adventurous, throw in a few fucking sticks of cinnamon. That can make it fun. But here's the here's the thing. Don't be tempted to fuck the ice into the large vat of sangria because that will affect its candour and its taste. Instead, have the ice in the cup. So you pour out the sangria and have the ice in the cup and that way the watering down occurs in the glass. Also, if you're very bold and you want to have a bit of crack, half fill up the fucking the cup with sangria and then fill the other half with Cava, which is the mind Prosecco. Prosecco's for goals. Cava is where it's at. Cava isn't popular, you see. Prosecco's popular, so because Prosecco's popular, you can get it everywhere, and most of it is shite. But Cava is Spanish sparkling white wine. It's not very popular, so generally it tends to be quite good quality, and it's only a tenner. Top the other half up with Cava, if you like. I, uh... I'm not being sponsored by Aldi or Lidl. I just think it's a good place to buy drinks sometimes. They were selling bottles of uh, this stuff called Alizé before, over Christmas. Now, Alizé, if you're a fan of Tupac or Dr. Dre, you will remember. Alizé um, was very popular in hip-hop in the mid-90s. So you can't buy it in Ireland. You cannot buy Alizé in Ireland. But Aldi, for whatever reason had a special on Alizé around Christmas, so I bought about about 12 bottles of it. So I have a load of Alizé. And the reason I bought it basically was, holy fuck, here's this drink I've been hearing about since I was 14, I have to buy it. Because Tupac has a cocktail called Tug Passion. He even has a song about it, which is one part Alizé, one part Cristal. Now Cristal can go fuck itself. So I was mixing Alizé and... Cava to make Tug Passion wasn't really that nice and it's unnecessarily strong but I did it interesting fact about my particular personal collection of Alizé of which I have about 7 bottles left I think Aldi were selling it because this particular batch was going out of production right Alizé is it's passion fruit liqueur with brandy in it right and in 90s hip-hop, brandy was very popular. Hennessy was Tupac's other drink. 
Hennessy was huge in hip hop. Brandy stopped being. Now the other thing as well, Alize wasn't. It, it didn't come out. It wasn't pitched as a hip hop drink. What Alize is is it's like um. It's not far off American Buckfast. It's a cheap, strong, fortified, sweet drink that was sold in poorer neighbourhoods in America. So it was popular with fucking rappers because, you know, they came from poor areas. So when rappers started to get money, they were like, oh, we have a load of money, we must start drinking champagne now. So Tupac was drinking champagne going... I'm, to be honest, I'm only really drinking this because I know it's expensive, but it's not that nice. I grew up drinking Alizé, which is lovely and sweet and passion fruity. I'm going to mix the two of them together. But Alizé very quickly figured out that it was the drink of choice in the hip-hop community, and then it started advertising itself as such. But something happened in hip-hop. French kind of crystal and... Hennessy stopped being popular in hip-hop. Now, I can tell you why <coughs> Cristal Champagne stopped being popular. Because around 2005, Cristal are... Uh, like, Cristal's incredibly expensive champagne. French champagne. And the lad who was the managing director of Cristal around 2005 was asked in an interview, how do you feel about all of these rappers who were shouting about Cristal in every single song. Because in the mid-90s, early 2000s, Cristal, Cristal, Cristal. Every rapper had Cristal in their song. And the lad who was running fucking Cristal said, we don't really want their business, what can we do about it? I'm sure Dom Perignon would love their business. And the rappers were very, very offended by this because they, they perceived that comment to be racist. It was like, you fucking posh cunt. We're forking out 250 quid a pop on your French champagne. And we're giving you free advertising all the time. And you have the balls to turn around and say you don't want to be associated with us because of our blackness and the fact that hip-hop is urban. Um, so there was a boycott against Cristal in the hip-hop community. And Jay-Z, very, very clever businessman, led the fucking boycott and then Jay-Z started his own brand of champagne. Can't remember the fucking name of it. Can't remember the name of Jay-Z's champagne, but he doesn't need my advertisement. But Jay-Z's a clever fucker with advertising. Like, put it this way. Three months ago, Jay-Z was in a restaurant, and he bought a, a, he bought a table of people. I think uh, it was about 20 bottles of his brand of champagne, and the bill came to 100 grand, and the tip on the bill was 20 grand. So Jay-Z tweeted a photograph of his 100 grand bill and the 20 grand tip, 120 grand. And on the bill was how many ever bottles of his brand of champagne he bought. And it was the most clever advertising I'd ever seen. Effectively, what he'd done there is he'd spent 120 grand on an advert that went globally massively viral. He could have spent millions on an advertising campaign for his fucking champagne but instead what he did he bought 120 grand's worth of it in a restaurant shared it and it went viral because you and me are like look at this mad cunt dropping a 20 grand tip and a 100 grand fucking wow and that went viral but Cristal stopped being popular in the hip hop community after that don't know why Hennessy stopped being popular 
But anyway, why is my particular Bottles of Alize unique? Because it contains brandy in it. After Hennessy stopped being popular, vodka became the new thing, the new drink in the hip-hop community because of Puff Daddy. Puff Daddy has a brand of vodka called Ciroc and he's been pushing this since about 2005. So vodka is now the cool spirit in the hip-hop community. So if you were to buy Alize now in America, the brandy is no longer in the recipe. It's passion fruit and vodka to keep up with hip-hop trends. Well, I've got six bottles of old, possibly gone-off Alize that still has brandy in it. So I'm one of the few people in the world that when I decide to crack open my Alize and have it with my sparkling champagne or sparkling cava, I'm drinking Tupac's actual recipe, which contains brandy Alize. So fuck you, man. Interesting vodka fact while we're on the subject. There's no such thing as good vodka. Vodka is industrial grain alcohol and water. That's what it is. Whether it be Smirnoff or Stolichnoff or whatever the fuck, they're all the same, right? But there's one brand of vodka, Grey Goose, which is 60, 70 quid a bottle for no fucking reason other than incredibly clever marketing. And it was the success of Grey Goose that made Puff Daddy go, I need to launch Ciroc. Look what these Grey Goose cunts are doing. So the history of Grey Goose, it was a yank. And this yank is also responsible for Jägermeister being popular in the 90s. Jägermeister was this really weird German herb tonic spirit that only old German men drank. And this American dude brought Jägermeister to America, mixed it with Red Bull, which had just come out in the mid-90s, and pitched it to college kids and invented the Jäger bomb. And that's why Jägermeister became popular, because of this dude. So the next thing he did was, he looked at, what's the cheapest alcohol I can buy? Vodka. It's just industrial grain alcohol mixed with water. And he looked at, in culture, what was considered to be expensive with liquor. And he reckoned, for the American audience, anything, anything fucking French. So what he did is he studied the packaging of wine. The best wines are in their own little wooden case with straw. And the best wines come from France. So Conti gets fucking industrial alcohol from wherever, mixes it with French water, has it bottled in France and serves the Grey Goose vodka in packaged in fucking wooden boxes with hay and charges 60 quid for it. And that's what people are paying for when they get Grey Goose. And they did they got a professional taster to try and taste the difference between Grey Goose and just industrial alcohol and water. They couldn't taste the difference. I heard that on some podcast that I listened to, and I can't remember what it is, so sorry for not crediting. Every week, I hope that this is not the podcast that some person decides to... This is the this is the one I'm going to listen to first. This podcast. I swear, there's other podcasts that are very informative and have structure and purpose. Like, a couple of weeks ago, I did a two-part podcast on the history of disco and techno. Loads of structure. Not this one. Here's my other favourite summer drink. Because... Loads of people were asking me on Twitter. They were just saying, have you any summer drinks? Because I really enjoyed the Yurtia Harn mulled wine you gave us at Christmas. 
I like to drink sparingly. Um, it's called a Hemingway daiquiri, which I only recently discovered, and it's fucking gorgeous. And in order to make this, you need to be able to get your hands on a bottle of maraschino liqueur, Luxardo, which can be hard to get. You've got to find a good off-license. Basically, what it is, is it's cherry liqueur, right? So, do it up in a blender with a bit of ice, if you like. Into a blender, a few cubes, cubes of ice, a shot or two of white rum, okay? Again, nothing wrong with Aldi's rum. It's only 11 quid, Aldi white rum. Shot of fucking white rum. Then, one shot of fresh grapefruit juice. Half a shot of fresh lime juice. And then a quarter shot of this cherry maraschino liqueur. And then a spoon of sugar if you like. Fuck that into the blender. And you get this icy, slushy, grapefruity, cherry concoction called a Hemingway daiquiri that is utterly gorgeous and it's way nicer than a normal daiquiri normal daiquiri is um, white rum lime juice and Cointreau which is a bitter orange liqueur 20-25 minutes in I'm not sure I know what the podcast is about lads I I think what I'm getting to I think I know what I'm getting to uh, there's another aspect of Irish summer culture that every one of you are going to fucking remember. If you grew up in a house where your ma did the cooking, my ma did the cooking in my house, there is something known as the Irish salad. Okay? One day a year, maybe two days a year, when it's boiling hot, roasting hot, every Irish mother turns around to the children and says it's too hot I'm not cooking a dinner I'm not cooking a dinner today it's too hot it's too much effort in the heat and it'll make the kitchen hotter you're having a salad most people are sickened by this information when your ma says it to you you're getting a salad because Irish salads are fucking rotten I don't know where the Irish salad came from but it's compo- It's not even a fucking salad what it's composed of is a cold boiled egg, a boiled egg that's made cold and cut in half. A boiled egg, thick sliced cheddar cheese, slices of cold ham, a slice of, slice of tomato, not even nice tomatoes. And if you're lucky, a bit of coleslaw, which would have been the only nice thing on the plate. And that's what happens once a year. Your ma turns around and says, it's too fucking hot, you're getting an Irish salad. And do you know what, it doesn't matter because you're kind of too hot to eat a dinner anyway. But you're there with a fucking boiled egg, a lump of cheese, and cold ham and coleslaw and a tomato. I think this podcast, today's podcast, is the Irish salad podcast. Because it's too fucking hot. It's boiling, it's roasting. And I had an idea for a podcast, something that I was going to investigate and do a bit of research on and give you a big hot take and tell a big investigative story. But it's too fucking hot. It's too hot. So today's podcast is an Irish salad. What I've ranted for 27 minutes. And what I'm going to do, because 
it's too hot to cook dinner. I'm just going to answer questions that you've given me. It'll still be entertaining. You'll still get your podcast hug. It's just this particular podcast is going to be about everything and nothing all at once. God bless. So Tommy asks, Blind by, what genre of music are the music to songs like Buddies in Boston and Double Dropping Yokes with Eamon de Valera? And how long into your career were you able to produce beats like that? Um, What Tommy's asking there is there's two songs on, on the Rubber Bandits album, Serious About Men. One song is called Buddies in Boston. That's dubstep. I made that in 2011. And dubstep was quite hot at the time and I was listening to dubstep. So I just was like, I'll throw a dubstep song on the album. Make the hipsters happy. I'm not crazy about that song. I like the lyrics to it, but it is quite dated. Double Drop and Yorks with Eamon de Valera. That's something I still enjoy to this day. And I said it on Twitter last week after I released the two disco podcasts. If you listen to the song Double Drop and Yorks, how I structured the music, it follows the history of house music. It starts off with a fourth of the floor, 808, and Lindrum beat. Then it turns into, which would be like 1981, 1982 house music. Then, in the middle of the song, I bring in an instrument known as a, a TB303, which is acid house music. That's 1987. And then the song finishes off with breakbeat hardcore style, which is like the prodigy circa 1992 so Double Drop and Yokes with Eamon de Valera which is a, a rave song about taking ecstasy with the ghost of Eamon de Valera former president of Ireland it's beat uh, the structure of it follows the history of electronic music and I did that to benefit me I didn't think in 2011 that I'd have a, a podcast where I could speak about the history of disco music and to be honest in 2011 with the followers we had the horse outside followers they wouldn't have given a fuck. So I made it. The, the, I made the structure of it, the history of electronic music, to entertain myself purely. And then eight years later, I'm able to tell ye, and hopefully someone will, will appreciate that. So it doesn't matter. I like it. But I do like that song. That still bangs. And I don't think it'll date either, because it, I stuck to principles of... Uh, classic principles, you know what I'm saying? Whereas Buddies in Boston... You can't play that now. That's fucking dubstep. What the fuck is dubstep? It's gone. Dubstep actually, are, interestingly, people want to pretend that it doesn't exist. Like if you look at the, like grime music in, in Britain is very popular at the moment. But, like, how did the history go? It went garage, UK garage, then UK garage turned into grime around 2006, and then grime turned into dubstep. And then dubstep was hijacked by Americans and became very embarrassing. And now grime is cool again. But most people pretend that dubstep never happened. Because dubstep is so uncool. We associate it with uh, American teenage gamers. You know? How did I? How long was I able to produce? I was producing about five years before I made that. Like, I said before about the song Dad's Best Friend. 
I made the beat for Dad's best friend in nearly an afternoon, nearly two days. But to be honest, I was ten years perfecting the electronic kind of rave sounds before I could get to the stage where I could make a song like that in two days. Um, I was four or five years learning audio production and music and instruments before I got to produce or make anything that would be resemble professional, do you know? So there's a huge, huge amount of work gone in. And luckily I learned to produce from a young age. I started producing at about 15, 16. So when you're that age, you can be feverishly passionate about whatever it is you're doing to the point that you neglect every other aspect of your life. I was messing with beats seven, eight hours a day. I can't do that anymore now because I have tinnitus in my ears. So if I spend too long producing a, a tune, maybe two, three hours, I'll just have a horrible ringing in my ears for the rest of the day. Morgan asks, <clears throat> have you noticed your listening figures drop due to the World Cup being on? I know I'm listening to football-based podcasts more than ever. Yes, I fucking have. There's been a slight dip in listeners since May, about 1 or 2%. And I thought it was the summer. I thought that, you know, it happened specifically at May. So I think a, a lot of my listeners who would be listening in college are... I have quite a few listeners actually in fifth and sixth year of school. When that ritual of... Like, we use podcasts usually as a, as a distraction, a comforting distraction, you know. A lot of people listen on their way to work or their way to college, and it's this distraction from the stressful thing in our life, job or education, that we don't like doing, and a podcast can provide a moment of solace. But in summer, there's a slight dip in listenership because people are out there enjoying their lives, which is a good thing. But ironically, last week, I was, like, wondering... If I'm getting a dip in listenership, then other podcasts must be getting a little dip in listenership too. So I contacted one of the lads from Second Captain's podcast, which is an Irish sports podcast. And I said to the boys, are you experiencing a bit of a dip at all? And they said, no, the fucking World Cup is on, you stupid cunt. We're experiencing a rise. And I didn't think of it because I know nothing about sports. And I don't even, I don't even know the World Cup is on. Like... I see it trending on Twitter, that's it. But I haven't seen one World Cup game. And it's freaky as well, like, because, like, soccer. And I, I called it soccer as well on Twitter, and a British person took umbrage with me calling it soccer. But I explained to him, Irish people call it soccer because our national game is called Gaelic football. So that's the first sport, Gaelic football. It's ours. Soccer is secondary, so we don't call soccer football. But... Yeah, I went onto Twitter and I, like, I woke up and I saw the top trending things and the two top trending things were Iran and Saudi Arabia. Now, when I wake up in the morning and I see Iran, Saudi Arabia trending, I shit my fucking pants because I don't have soccer on the brain. So when I saw Iran and Saudi Arabia trending, I'm like, fuck, they're finally after doing it. One of them's after nuking the other and this is why they're trending. And I got a very intense blast of anxiety waiting for my phone to refresh to find out that nuclear war had finally broken out between Iran and Saudi Arabia. It didn't. There was a soccer match. Aidan asks, Hi blind boy. I wake up feeling like my life is inadequate in the mornings. Is morning depression real? 
yeah, that's a cunt. Um, sometimes I get that. Not often. Sometimes I'll wake up and, and you, you wake up out of bed and the first thing you wake up with is this... You know, it's like you rise into the world and you're out of the, the comfort of sleep and you're back into your existence and this heavy, sad weight just comes over my body and I feel sad. And now before, when I had bad mental health issues, when that would happen, that moment, that moment of arising and waking into the world with a feeling of sadness, that would be enough to ruin my day. Because my brain would say, all right, you're after waking up sad now. Oh, everything is meaningless. Great, you're going to have a shit day. So I, I still wake up very occasionally with that feeling and it's rotten it's horrible to wake up out of bed and all of a sudden to go oh I'm sad but I challenge it through practice I challenge that in the fucking moment usually when that happens to me personally it's when I'm if I'm going through a period where I don't have a sense of meaning in my life for me, that usually means if I go about a month or six weeks having done nothing creative because creativity is very much, for me personally, a cathartic um, aspect of my behaviour that gives me great sense of personal meaning, okay? So what I'd say to you, Aidan, is, is now I don't know what's bothering you. I haven't a clue. But... If you're waking up with this random sense of of, of sadness, I I would wager that you're struggling for a sense of meaning in your life. So work on finding that sense of meaning. But as well, if, you know, a sense of meaning isn't what's causing your upset, a good thing to kind of counteract the sadness and this, you know, inadequate feeling of life Confronted directly by saying to yourself, suffering is an inevitable part of being alive. Feeling inadequate is an acceptable and inevitable part of being alive. But it doesn't have to be the truth. Do you know what I mean? Whatever feelings come up in yourself around your own inadequacy, test them in the moment against the true reality of it. Do you know, what, what evidence do you have that you're inadequate? You can't be fucking inadequate. And I'll tell you why, Aidan, and I've said this a million times before. You have intrinsic human value. And it's the same as mine. And it's the same as anybody else's. You have value as a human being. And your behaviour does not define your value as a person. So whatever inadequacy you feel... It's as a result of some aspect of your behaviour. When I wake up feeling like that, usually it's the aspect of my behaviour that has me feeling inadequate is I'm not being creative. I'm not living up to my potential. I'm not doing that thing that gives me a sense of personal meaning. Many, many years of self-reflection, I know that that's what would have me waking up that way. Ask yourself, what, what is your 
thing that has you feeling that way and do not define your value as a human being by an aspect of your behaviour because it's inaccurate, it's untrue. It's harsh shit. And treat it like a bully. Treat that feeling in the morning as a bully. You're waking up beside a version of yourself that knows all of your fears, all of your insecurities, and you're waking up beside yourself and that devil on your shoulder wakes you up and says, ha-ha, getting up, are we? Going to take on the day, going to be happy. No, 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 I'm going to remind you. Treat that aspect of yourself as a bully. And what you do is, no, bully. What you're saying to me there, you're, you're describing aspects of my behaviour. And they do not define my value as a human being. So piss off. And you can't guarantee yourself a happy day. But what you can guarantee yourself is a rational day. To live your day based on the sadness of that morning is irrational. But the rational approach is to challenge the negativity against reality. And I've just said it. No aspect of your behaviour can define your value as a person. So go about your day. And, and, and sometimes as well, yeah, this is another thing I'll say to myself when that happens. In the moment, I'll say to myself, I'm not fucking letting this little pang of sadness to, to make the rest of my day sad. I'm going to really, really put some effort today into enjoying some shit. No matter what it is. If that means getting up and the cup of coffee you have or the cereal enjoy it in a mindful fashion it's very hard to entertain that type of negativity when you've got a lovely bowl of porridge or muesli or a decent cup of coffee and all you're doing when you consume it is focusing on how nice it is focusing on that first sip of coffee and how tasty it is and making that the only thing you concentrate on and the lovely sensation of freezing cold milk on your fucking muesli and the few bits of raisins you might find or whatever or whatever you like for breakfast focus solely and entirely on that when you eat it and bring those little bits of joy into your mind and into your body and that mindful practice could be enough to shake away that negativity you wake up with you know that's just my take on it I know nothing else about you that's what I would do if it was me give it a lash and if that's not working for you then look at your options with uh, you know can you access counselling maybe you need to take a trip to your doctor that's just me being sensible there now Yort it's 50 minutes in so we're going to take an ocarina pause what this is is this podcast is hosted by an app called Acast and Acast insert digital adverts at the start, in the middle and at the end. Some people hear the adverts, other people's don't. It depends on your geographical location. So what I like to do is I'll play a Spanish clay whistle, my ocarina, for a gentle amount of time. And if you're lucky, you'll just hear the ocarina. And if you're not lucky, you're going to be sold some stuff.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. That was the ocarina pause. After the ocarina pause... I mentioned some things such as uh, how this podcast is supported. This podcast is supported by you, the listener. If you enjoy the podcast, if you like listening to it every week, I do this five about five hours of content a week completely for free. You know, you're listen, listening to this for free, as is your entitlement. But if you want to support me and my life and the effort that goes into making it, what I suggest is you can go to patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast and you can donate me the price of a pint or the price of a cup of coffee once a month. Do you enjoy my podcast enough whereby if you met me you'd go, I'll buy that break of coffee. If that's how you feel, go on to the Patreon account and kindly donate me the price of a coffee once a month. If you don't feel that way, that's fine. You don't have to. You can continue to listen for free. It's a very egalitarian model, a very fair model of supporting this podcast, I think. Everyone gets the same service, but I'm appealing to your sense of kindness and generosity as well, because some people can't afford to be generous. But if you can afford a fiver a month, throw it over here for the crack, because I really, really appreciate it, and it makes a massive, massive difference to my life. And I think that's, it's a very fair exchange for me doing five hours a month to get a fiver off you. If you can't afford nothing, or if you want to do both, also, um, suggest this podcast to a friend, especially if you're not living in Ireland. Suggest the podcast to a friend. Put it on your Twitter, put it on your Facebook, your Instagram. Get me some more listeners. That would be class. And... If you're using iTunes, rate and review and subscribe to this podcast. That really, really helps too. Because this podcast has been... It's been number one in the charts every single week since it's come out. Not consistently number one, but at least one or two days a week it's number one. And that's because of shares, listens, but also reviews and ratings. So I really appreciate that too. Thank you. Um, Barry asks I have a question about Quentin Tarantino for you blind boy he's been on record talking about his writing process at the beginning I'll stick it here too just in case he basically 
Tarantino basically rewrote scenes from films he liked for an improv class until he started accidentally adding in dialogue that didn't exist before. Do you reckon this is true form of flow or is it bullshit? Yeah, um, I'd fucking 100% believe that. So what Barry's asking there is that Quentin Tarantino and how he writes his films, he would actually lift scenes from other films, films that he admired, and he would edit their scripts until eventually he's dealing with his own original content. I'd 100% believe that. I think it's R.E.M. Not 100% sure on this, but I think the band R.E.M. started off in a garage as a, as a kind of a covers band between friends. And what they started doing was, for, for the crack, they would get, I think it was Beatles cards. So they'd get like the cards of a Beatles song and put like the lyrics of the Beach Boys over it. And mixing those two things together, they ended up with something that was different and original. So then Michael Stipe turns around and says, why don't I do my own lyrics over it? And why don't we mix things up? Now, I'm not 100% that it was R.E.M., I think it was, but they started off that way, mixing the Beatles and fucking the Beach Boys. But I'd 100% believe that about Quentin Tarantino. Tarantino is, first and fo- as a filmmaker, he is first and foremost a fan of films. Tarantino worked in a fucking video shop. He was obsessive. He wrote the script to Reservoir Dogs while working behind the fucking counter of a video shop. And Tarantino, his work exemplifies postmodernism in cinema, right? I speak about postmodernism and modernism a lot. But when I say postmodernism in cinema, a postmodern film is a film that is 100% aware that it has an audience. A postmodern film knows that there's no point kind of pretending. It's creating a film for an audience that are culturally and visually aware of what a film is, how a film is supposed to work, aware of tropes, things like that. And Pulp Fiction, right? What makes Pulp Fiction so kind of fun and groundbreaking when it came out in 1994... There's a genre of writing called Pulp Fiction. In the 1950s, writers used to... They used to make these kind of like comic books. They were sensationalist stories, right, that were sold. The reason they were called Pulp is because they were printed on the cheapest possible pulp paper. And it was very cheesy stories were written on this Pulp Fiction that you'd buy for like a penny... And the stories were usually about sex. And there were certain tropes. Like one trope in not Pulp Fiction the film. But in the genre of Pulp Fiction from the 50s was. The boxer that throws a fight. And gets chased by the mob. That was one story in in a Pulp Fiction novel. Or the gangster that has to date uh, his boss's wife. And not have sex with the wife. But then he does. Another story would have been the pocket watch smuggled from war. So the film Pulp Fiction, Tarantino's Pulp Fiction, he literally took these stock stories from 1950s pulp novels and stitched them together in a very self-aware postmodern fashion to create the film Pulp Fiction as we know it. It's an incredibly self-aware piece of work that intertwines with these cliches. But... 
postmodernism basically it gets cliches right mixes them right beside each other to create something new it comes from a technique that was pioneered by a group of postmodern artists called the shit the, the not the shit situationists the situationists from the 1960s the situationists had a technique called detournement it's a french word where basically you get two separate things an image and a word or whatever stick them together and see what new meaning is created from a random effect that's how the film pulp fiction is made let's get the boxer throws a fight story and let's put that right beside the fucking mobster has to take the wife of of the gang leader out on a date let's put them all beside each other mix them together see how they interact and can it form something new and ironic and it fucking does and there's loads of little tropes as well in in pulp fiction like john travolta's as well as that it's it's another thing that makes pulp fiction so self-aware and aware that it has an audience is that it has a non-linear time structure pulp fiction knows that the audience understands how film structure works because the audience knows that first act second act third act which is usually set up conflict resolution because an audience in 1994 going to the cinema is so entrenched in watching movies their whole lives tarantino figures i can fuck with this structure and they'll still be able to they'll be smart enough to stitch it all together themselves and that's how it works because it's very non-linear how the story is told he's also consciously playing with tropes one thing that used to bother tarantino about films is in movie world nobody ever went to the toilet and this used to bother him when he was in the fucking video shop watching loads and loads of films he was going did anyone ever need to go for a piss or take a shit? So he writes into Pulp Fiction, John Travolta's character is, he's looking for Butch Fig, who's Bruce Willis's character. Bruce Willis is in the jacks taking a shit. No, John Travolta's taking a shit. Bruce Willis is in the kitchen. John Travolta, in the in the process of taking a shit, decides... I'll just leave my machine gun on the counter here. Bruce Willis finds the machine gun. John Travolta emerges from taking a shit and Bruce Willis kills him. So Travolta or, or Tarantino got his moment there. He got to go, not only has one of the characters in my film done something as human as use the toilet, but it is central to how that character is killed in the film. So I'd 100% believe that Tarantino was mashing things up and taking pre-existing fucking films and rewriting dialogue and I would suggest as well if you're if you're st- anyone is stuck in creative block do that introduce that into your process there's nothing more terrifying than a blank page take a piece of work that already exists do you know I'm writing a short story at the moment in my new book and it's not really consciously but a- after kind of getting into it I realise it's an exact cross between John B. Keane's The Field and The Human Centipede and I'm mixing the two of those genres with a bit of originality in there, you know, to create something new. David Bowie used to use this as a technique. He borrowed it from the poet and writer William Burroughs, who ironically, Burroughs, who had a heroin addiction, Burroughs is a serious postmodern uh, writer. He used to write pulp fiction novels in the 50s under a pseudonym. 
to pay the rent and to pay for his heroin addiction. Burroughs used to, when he was doing his own work that he'd put his name to, used to use what's known as a cut-up technique. Burroughs would write loads and loads of diaries or whatever, get the diaries, go at them with a fucking knife, cut them up, take out whatever bits, rearrange them, put them together to create new pieces of work. And David Bowie borrowed this technique from William Burroughs, especially during his cocaine period of the mid-70s, when David Bowie was made... um, The album Diamond Dogs, I know for a fact, 1974, was written using the cut-up technique, where Bowie had tons and tons of lyrics. He'd cut them out of the paper, arranged them beside each other to make songs. So that's an example of how the cut-up technique can work. Someone whose actual name is Jesus, or I, I assume Jesus, is asking me, Blind boy, what has been your experience with body image issues, if any, and do lads talk about their insecurities amongst themselves? Um, firstly, lads do not talk about body image issues at all. Do lads have body image issues? Fucking hell yes. Um... I can only assume it's far worse now for 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 lads that are in their late teens and 20s now. I can assume it's worse. And I, the reason I say this is when I was a teenager, only certain lads went to the gym. Usually lads on the rugby team or whatever like that, they would go to the gym. But lads going to the gym when I was in sixth year, it, it was exceptional behaviour. Maybe two or three lads. Now every young lad is going to the gym because of Instagram. Because they want to have their six-pack or whatever for Instagram. So I'd imagine body image is a much bigger issue for young lads today. But lads don't talk about that. If, if Jesus Christ... Like, within the roles of lads' peer groups, if, if you came out to a group and said, I'm conscious about my ears or my nose or my weight you'd be relentlessly slagged. Relentlessly. Because this is seen as a feminine activity. You'd be called gay. So lads do not talk about that. But I've no doubt that lads are very, very worried about privately. About their image and about what they look like. Not as much as women. Because the pressure from culture and the media for women to look a certain way is far, far larger than it is on lads. But there is a pressure on lads to look and be a certain way. One thing that's highly triggering for lads is height. I know I know that um, lads hate it. Hate it when they hear girls say that they're into lads that are... Like I saw a, a very funny tweet the other day. It was gas, no in fairness. But it was a girl said, I like my lads like I like my nose, 6-1. And... Jesus, there were some very bothered lads underneath that. Lads hate hearing that height is is a, is a, an attractive tenet. But lads, girls, a girl will will be attracted to a lad who isn't physically attractive if if his personality is good. It doesn't happen as often the other way around. So lads have it easier, but there's still pressure. My experience with body image, um. I struggle a bit with my fucking weight, to be honest. After Horse Outside, I had like six months to finish and release 
the Rubber Bandits album, right? So for six months, I literally only focused on making the album. I didn't leave my house. I was so busy, I didn't cook my own meals. So I was having takeaways delivered. And I put on two stone in six months. I was in my early 20s. So it was... Having come out of my late tween, tweens, having come out of my late teens, when you're fucking 19, you can eat battered sausages every day of the week and you're grand, but once you hit fucking 20, forget about it, you have to start actually watching what you eat. So I'd put on two unnecessary stone, and it was fucking awful. Like, I really didn't enjoy it, and now I'm not, I'm, I'm not shaming anybody with weight on them. Some people are comfortable with how they look. If I have unnecessary fucking weight on me it's not comfortable physically right I don't have uh, flexibility Um, you get tired easier it's draining I fucking hate having excess weight but I also have quite a slow metabolism so I try very hard I fucking jog 10 kilometers three, three times a week I fucking lift weights to maintain a healthy weight I could have be completely fucking ripped and have a six pack but that would mean literally not enjoying my life. Like, Monday to Friday, I will watch what I eat and exercise, but come Saturday, I absolutely want to have a feed of cans and maybe a hangover pizza. I love doing that, and I'm okay if that means I ha- if that means that I have a bit of dad bod, I'm okay with that. For me, again, it, it's... I try not to entertain the body image side of things. I exercise for my mental health and I exercise for my physical health, for energy, for flexibility, uh, to stay feeling young, to stay feeling mentally healthy. Like, exercise is brilliant for my fucking mental health. I'll get up straight in the fucking morning. When I, when I go for a run, I get up in the morning, I don't eat anything, and I run 10 kilometres on an empty stomach. Um. And I fucking love it. And it's very energising. And it prepares me for everything that day. If I happen to lose fat as a result of that, I look at that as a positive consequence. But I do not get up in the morning and say, I'm running 10k to burn X amount of calories and to lose X amount of weight. Because I used to do that. I used to exercise, go to the gym and diet with specific physical goals. And what happens is, again, you're basing your... I was basing my my motivation in an external factor. And when you do that, you end up obsessing about external things. And the most healthy way to engage in exercise, you have to do it to enjoy the process of it. I get up and jog 10 kilometers because it feels fucking orgasmic. It feels amazing. I'm always prosetalizing running on this podcast. Running's incredible, and so is lifting weights. If you're just starting it, it's horrible. It's supposed to be horrible. Lifting weights and running for the first six weeks is fucking disgusting. Your body is going, what are you doing, Sham? Because your body still thinks you're a caveman. If you put on two extra stone and you're a caveman, your body is going, brilliant, man. You're not dying this winter. Because come September, when there's no fucking, when the harvest is is gone or whatever and shit's frozen over, I'm eating your belly and we're going to be grand. So your body rewards you for getting fat. 
but like so when you start exercising your body's going to resist it it's it's going to be very painful not enjoyable and you're going to go why do people do this but after a while after about six weeks you end up I, th- I think it's when you start getting good at it when you're in the gym one day lifting weights and you feel I'm getting good at this or you feel results in your body same with running when you're like I'm getting good at this then the reward chemicals start coming into the brain and I swear to fuck a 10 kilometer jog for me it's 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 like saying to myself I get to I get an hour on the Xbox now do you know what I mean I love it I fucking love it I absolutely adore it and I'm doing this f- five or six years but the reason I'm kind of explaining it is I remember looking at people who run or go to the gym and thinking fucking wankers they're just showing off they I don't believe them for the second that they enjoy it they're just narcissists and they're happy that they look good that's not the case when you get good at exercising it is one of the greatest the most rewarding feelings in the world and it will not solve any mental health issues but it will definitely prepare you and improve the quality of your life without a doubt it can't not you're flying endorphins all over your body do you know Jesus that's 70 minutes there lads alright I leave you go have a bit of compassion for yourself a compassion for other people and enjoy the gorgeous lovely weather and next week because it's going to be piss and rain I'm going to be back on with a well thought out structured podcast about a specific thing and I know what that thing is I just haven't put the research in Yart.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.